Proverbs chapter 11, and uh, we're in verse 20. One of the things that um, some of you new folk will learn as we go along is that we're in no hurry. Uh, we don't have to uh, meet any deadline. I don't have to finish this book before I go to heaven. But we, there are some people, there are some people that are, you know, it's really, uh, we've got to take them aside and teach them some eschatology, but they really think the rapture can't take place till we finish Proverbs, and they wish I'd hurry, but <laughs> we know that isn't true. We, um, we also, as we go along, we discover that in Hebrew poetry, um, it doesn't rhyme. There's no r rhyme or rhythm to the poetry. Instead, we deal with parallelisms. We deal with a statement, which then is followed by another statement, which either supports the, the statement previous, or gives a contrast, or adds to it in some way, or compares it in some way. And uh, these uh, parallelisms have been, uh, there's been a theological word taken from the German language that have, ha has been coined by the German theologians uh, in order to describe this phenomenon that's found in Hebrew literature, and they're called dishtics. Dishtics are uh, parallel lines, and uh, that's what we're dealing with in the book of Proverbs. So you, just so you'll know, as we go along, there's a sheet in the notes uh, that gives you all of the various kinds of dishtics that are available in the uh, uh, book of Proverbs. So. Uh, we'll look now at Proverbs chapter 11, verse 20. The perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their walk are his delight. The most important thing in life, as you study God's Word and as you, as you realize the, the various aspects of life, the most important thing that a person can do is to please God. There's nothing more important than that. In every part of his life, he should please God. You may remember in Hebrews chapter 11 that God gave this testimony, this witness concerning Enoch. Remember Enoch in the Old Testament, early chapter of the book of Genesis, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. But in the book of Hebrews, it gives us additional light. It says that Enoch had this testimony that he pleased God. And it says in Hebrews 11 also that without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's why we are to walk by faith and not by sight. That's why uh, faith is to be our watchword. It begin, a Christian life begins with faith. It operates on faith. It ends in faith. The whole matter is a faith matter, putting our trust and our confidence in God. And without that faith, it's impossible to please God. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, it tells us that no man that warreth entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath called him to be a soldier. Pleasing God. Maybe you could turn with me for a moment by way of introduction to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thess 4, and verse 1. Just look at a few verses concerning this matter of pleasing God, because that's the heart of 1120. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually walk, that you may excel still more. A major goal in the Christian life should always be to live tomorrow more pleasing to God than we did today. Praise God if yesterday was a day where you were conscious of the fact that what you were doing was pleasing to God. But would to God that the goal you might have for today is that you might please Him more. That every aspect of your life will be focused in on pleasing Him. If you look at John chapter 8, you see the attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ, really the watchword of His life. John chapter 8, 
beginning at uh, verse 28, Jesus therefore said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me, and He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. It's no wonder that in Matthew chapter 3 verse 17 and in the other synoptic accounts of the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ that the heavens opened and God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Christ was well-pleasing to God. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1, flip over there for a moment. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10. Let's read verse 9 as well. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God and strengthened with all might and so on. Pleasing him in all respects. Back over to 1 Thessalonians, again, chapter 2 and verse 4. But just as we have been approved of God, these men that were the apostles, just as we have been approved of God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Turn over to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 and uh, verse 22. All of, all of us like the great promises concerning answered prayer. Because we love, to, we love to believe that if we simply lift our, our voices in, in prayer that the God of heaven is going to hear that prayer and answer. And how marvelous it is to see how many times God does that in our lives. Prayer is a marvelous thing. But there are some conditions for answered prayer. A number of them. One is you have to ask. You have not because you ask not. Another is you have to have clean hands. If, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If you don't, if you have sin in your life, you have no guarantee that God is going to answer prayer. But now notice in verse 22 of 1 John chapter 3, and whatsoever we ask, we receive from him. It's like a blank check. Because, now notice, two conditions. Because we keep his commandments, now those are the things that are specified in Scripture. We keep His commandments. The things that He has laid down. It's not talking about the Ten Commandments there. It's not even talking about the Old Testament law per se. It's talking more about the law of Christ as recorded in the New Testament, which of course supports the Old Testament law and the Ten Commandments as well. But nevertheless, it's the whole area of what Scripture says, what God has given to us. For instance, the command that you love one another given 15 times in the New Testament, the command to bear one another's burdens, the command to, to pray for one another, and so on. There are all kinds of things. Those are the commands. That's the first thing. Obedience and answered prayer are tied together. But then there's a further thing, and that is, and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Now those may be sometimes those things that are not specified in Scripture. But nevertheless, when we weigh the, the matter out and ask ourselves, should I do this or should I not? You have to ask yourself, is it pleasing to God? If it is not pleasing to God, you should not do it. 
If it is pleasing to God for certain, do it. Now really, the secret of pleasing God is over in Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. I want you to look at this. It becomes a key thing as far as our lives are concerned. Romans chapter 15 and verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached thee fell upon me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Now the Lord Jesus Christ pleased God in all respects. He did it by not pleasing himself. If you jump back then to verse 1 of chapter 15, it says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification. The secret and the key to pleasing God is living our lives without pleasing ourselves, without self-gratification, with a life of self-denial. So Christ was doing us a favor when he said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, say no to himself, to his desires, to his wants, take up his cross and follow me. Now to please God, you have to learn to love what God loves and hate what God hates. You cannot please God until you come to that place where where you begin to recognize the things that are abhorrent to God and the things that God loves. And there are two key words used in Scripture to point out the things that God particularly despises, those and also those that he particularly loves. The negative, the negative word, that is the things that he hates, is the word abomination. abomination. And the positive word, the second word, that indicates what God loves is the word delights. There are other words like um, hate and despise and loathe, those kinds of words. And uh, there are other words such as loves and uh, glories and rejoices, those kinds of words in the positive sense. But you can get a rough idea of God's permanent hatred for sin by looking at the verses that use the word abomination. And you can see what he loves by looking up those verses that indicates the things that God, in which God delights. The word for abomination in the Hebrew is the word, word toeba. Toeba is used about 120 times in the Old Testament. And we want to look just for a few minutes at how it's used in the book of Proverbs, all right? And we'll begin at the end and move our way backward, if that's all right. Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 9. Chapter 28 and verse 9. And we'll just look at these briefly and see how they relate to our text this morning. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 9, says this, He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Get the picture? Here's a man who says, I don't have to study the Bible, but I'll pray to God. God says, you do that. And not only are a lot of other things in your life an abomination to me, but even when you pray without the word of God in your heart, your prayer is abomination to me. You wouldn't think that God would call prayer an abomination, would you? But God hates prayer that comes from a heart where the word of God is not dwelling. That's why we want to hide God's word in our heart. We want to live in God's word. We want to study God's word. That's why when I pray, I pray with an open Bible in front of me. On my knees before God, my Bible is there. I look at a psalm as an example. 
and I'll I'll, I'll, I'll I'll look at those things that relate to me and I'll pray them back to God. God loves to hear his own word. That's one of the reasons that we want to we want to learn how to use meditation in prayer where we study a passage of scripture and we, we get the message of it in our heart and we, we, we learn the words and we, we, we uh, just over and over again run them through our mind and then when we pray that, that becomes a part of our prayer. I love to hear people when they pray and they, they, they're able to show a grasp of scripture as they pray. But prayer without God's Word is an abomination to God. Of course, there's an exception to that. The exception is when a man says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. When a man is coming before God, seeking his face, and uh, hasn't perhaps been exposed to what Scripture has to say, God will respond to the heart of a man like that. But prayer, when a man has had the opportunity to learn the Word of God and he refuses to listen to the Word of God, he turns his heart away from the Word of God, he turns his mind off from the Word of God, and he comes to God and he has a beautiful, eloquent prayer. God says it stinks. It's an abomination. An example of that, of course, was the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee, the, the text says so very clearly, the Pharisee stood praying with himself. That's all he prayed, just himself. And he said, I thank God that I'm not as other men. <laughs> That's not scriptural. He had all kinds of exposure to God's word, but he had despised God's word in his heart by the way he, he lived. And so he lifts up his, his prideful heart and he says, I thank God that I'm not as other men. I, I tithe, I pray, I, I, I fast, I do all of these things. I thank God I'm not like that publican over there. Meanwhile, the publican was on his face before God saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Christ said, which of the two went up to his house justified? It's quite obvious, isn't it? The prayer of the Pharisee was an abomination to God because it was not tempered with Scripture. And whether the publican knew it or not, he was praying a scriptural prayer. Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21. And verse 27. For the sake of your notes, put down 15.8 as well because it's virtually the same idea. Proverbs 21, verse 27. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination how much more when he brings it with evil intent. Now we're talking about degrees. God not only hates the sacrifice of the wicked, but he, he hates it even more when he's got a wrong motive. You can imagine, here's a man who comes to the Jewish altar with no intention of allowing God to work in his life. He does not come confessing his sin. He simply comes with the idea in mind of, of uh, doing whatever he wants to do, but somehow currying God's favor. He's like the person who goes to church just before he's got a big business deal coming up because he wants the, he wants the business deal to, to be good, so he's hoping by coming to church he'll get God's blessing. I got news for you. God hates that stuff. He hates hypocrisy. God wants men to come with their sacrifice. He wants men to come to him. He wants men to come to church with a heart that's pure, a heart that's yielded to him. And he hates wrong motives. And he hates even sacrifice. The man, the man who gives his money hoping to curry God's favor. You can't bribe God. Now we get this idea, God's this poor man in the sky that desperately needs our money. You know, God lets you give to him because it's good for you. He doesn't need your money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. All of the, all of the mountains and all of the oceans belong to him. He owns all of the wealth, all of the gold, all of the silver. It's all his. He's the one that says, I will supply all your need according to my riches in glory by Christ Jesus. But he gives you the privilege of giving. 
So there's an expression in a monetary way of thanks to God. You get the idea, well, I made this sacrifice, God owes me. I got news for you. If you had to pay for even one aspect of God's favor, there wouldn't be enough money in the world to pay that. God gives what he gives on the basis of grace. You cannot buy it. There is no way that you can bribe God. God wants you to come with a pure and simple heart dependent upon his grace. And the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to God. Now, by the way, that means then that in anything that we do, we have to make sure that our hearts are right with him. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus Christ says, when you bring your gift to the altar and you remember there that you have something against your brother, leave your gift by the altar. Go and first be reconciled to the brother and then come and offer your gift. God wants you to have a heart that is pure toward him, a heart right with him and right with others. And if you're not, then you are wicked. Remember, the word wicked that is used over and over again in the book of Proverbs is the word ra. Ra means one thing. Wrong. Right? It means wrong. It does not mean uh, a, a drunkard, a, a, a derelict a person who has murdered someone or something like that. It includes that person. But there, here's a person with wrong attitudes, wrong, making wrong decisions, doing wrong things. And the word can be intes, intensified, ra'ah, rasha, ra'ah, uh, these various ways of intensifying it with an intensive stem at the end. But the, the idea is that the basic idea is wrong. Some people are more wrong than others. But the wrong is always opposed to right. The word sadak, which is the word for a right or righteousness, stands in constant contrast to the word wrong. And so you see, we're not, when we're talking about the wicked, we're not talking about necessarily a person who is terribly wicked. We're talking about a person who's wrong, as opposed to being right, who is not doing God's will as opposed to one who is. Look at chapter 20, verse 23. 20, 23, and you can put down a couple other verses there. Uh, 20, verse 10, 11, verse 1. All of those verses deal with this basic same thing. We won't look up the other ones. We'll just look at this one. Differing weights are an abomination to the Lord, and a false scale is not good. In those days, you know, the, a man would, uh, would, would have a bag of weights, and when he would uh, when he would measure out his grain, uh, he would have one weight. Uh, he'd have the weight that he would use on the balance scale to demonstrate what the product was. But there were some who had two bags. They had a bag with heavier weights and a bag with lighter weights. All right. It depends on whether you're buying or selling, which one you use. You get the idea. And uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses legislated with the people of Israel that as the people of God, you must not have two bags with differing weights. Why? Because a differing weight is an abomination to God. Dishonesty, cheating of any form, any kind, is an abomination to God. God hates it. You young people who are going to be going to school in just a little bit. And uh, you go to that school today and you have an opportunity to look on the paper beside you to get the right answers. God hates that. He hates it. You businessmen, you have an opportunity today to just cut a corner just a little bit, speed your work up, save you a little money. God hates that. And live your life to please him, you've got to be honest. You can't cut corners. You've got to be totally and completely honest. Chapter 17 and verse 15. He who justifies the wicked 
and he who condemns the righteous. Both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Both of them. The man who is the, the judge, perhaps, or a witness, who justifies the wicked, who says, oh, that's all right. I'll tell you, we're so guilty of that today. Nobody's perfect. Somebody does something wrong, oh, that's all right. No problem. Justifies it. Tries to say it's right when it's really wrong. The nation of Israel had a period of time in their history shortly before their captivity where they had judges that would call wrong right and right wrong. They condemned the righteous. They justified the wicked. And people, let me tell you something. We, we have a, a, a media blitz that is going on today trying to, to alter the value system of the American people. And uh, we know that Satan's behind it. We're surprised that people can so easily be duped. But let me tell you something. There is, it is an unprecedented day today where they are saying that wrong is right and right is wrong. And leading the parade and this kind of thinking are the psychologists and psychiatrists of today. Because you see, when a man comes to them with guilt because of something he's done, the way they try to get rid of his guilt is by saying that wrong is right. You wouldn't feel guilty if you knew that to be right. And so they begin to call wrong right. They justify the wicked. They excuse sin. God never does, and God hates it. But at the same time, in order to bring about that moral revolution, there has to be slander against the, wicked, against the righteous. You have to say the righteous are wrong. So you see, suddenly the, the people that are living for God are bigots. Suddenly the people that are, that are surrendering their lives to Jesus Christ, who would have been thought of as heroes even a few years ago, are crazy on the lunatic fringe. I'll tell you, God says he despises this. Despises it. Chapter 16 and verse 5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination of the Lord. Now, those of you who have been coming for a while, you uh, know all about pride and, and uh, humility. Let me just review it once again. As used in Scripture, all of the words for pride in both the Old and New Testament boil down to one very clear bottom line. Pride is independence of God. Pride is trying to do it on your own or believing that you can do something on your own without God's help. Pride is the denial of what Christ said in John 15 when he said, without me you can do how much? Nothing. 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 Humility is recognizing that to be true. Recognizing you're utterly dependent upon God. Pride and humility. And God hates every proud way, every proud look, every proud action. When man tries to do it alone, you see, pride was the basis of the fall. Satan says you can make it alone, Eve. You don't have to worry about God. God will get off your back because once you've taken of this forbidden fruit, you're going to be as wise as God. You're not going to need God anymore. And people have been buying that lie ever since. The lie that man can make it independent of the Creator that he can do it on his own, that somehow God made man to stand on his own two feet, that God made man to, to be his own man, to be independent, to, to be the rugged individualist. Philosophers all the way through history have fed the pride of men, and God says he hates it. 
God doesn't want you to go it alone. God wants you in humility to look to him and say, God, you know, I'm faced with a tough day today. I can't do it alone. If I do it alone, I'll make mistakes. can't afford mistakes. Therefore, Lord, I commit my life to you. And I say, take my life and use it for your own glory. I am dependent constantly upon you. People say, well, I'm not dependent upon God. You see, it's not a matter whether you are or not. You are. Let me tell you that. All right? You are. It's a matter of whether you recognize you are. Some of these wise guys, I feel like saying to them sometimes when they say, oh, I made this on my own. They say, hey, uh, quit breathing God's air then. He made the air. You quit eating God's food. God's the one that sends the sunshine. He's the one that sends the rain. He does it all according to grace. He sends the rain upon the just and the unjust. He sends the sunshine to, to warm the earth. God does that graciously. He does it without asking for anything in return at all. He gives it to everyone. The most wicked man on earth still enjoys the good things that God gives. You want to say you can make it without God, then quit using his stuff. Man wouldn't last very long, would he? Chapter 15, verse 26. Chapter 15, verse 26. Evil plans are an abomination to the Lord. You know, uh, some of you, I don't know which one, so try not to look, look guilty. Some of you have already planned today some things that you know are not pleasing to God. You know that what you're going to do is evil. And you've got it up your sleeve. You know. I don't know. You know. God knows. And your plans, God hates. Because they're wicked. In contrast, pleasant words are pure. Look at verse 9, same chapter. The way of the wicked, the path of the wicked, the way that the wrong person goes when he's going wrong, the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. In contrast, he who loves him pursues righteousness. He walks a different path. He has a different drummer. Chapter 12. Verse 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. But those who deal faithfully are his delight. There's that neat little word delight that we'll see in a moment. Chapter 6. Verse 16. I'll restrain myself on the lying lips. There's lots we could say there. Now here's God's listing. There are six things which the Lord hates, yea, seven that are an abomination to him. We understand something that in Hebrew poetry, when you have a listing like that, where it says that somebody hates or loves a certain number of things, but there's a, it would seem to us an afterthought. There's another, there's another one to add to the list. Six things the Lord hates. No, there's seven. It's not as though the writer had a lapse in memory. But it, this was a poetic way of emphasizing the last one, the one we're after. And one who spread strife among brothers. All of them God hates. All of them are an abomination to him. But the one that in this passage is singled out is one who causes strife. Now, in our verse, in chapter 11 and also in chapter 3 verse 32 it is the forward the perverse that is an abomination to God the perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord but before we look at that in some detail let's look at the contrast the antithesis let's look at some of the things in the book of Proverbs in which God delights now there are several words for delight in the Hebrew but the one that is ordinarily used to speak of the Lord delighting in something is the word ratzon. We've seen that before in our studies. It actually means that which is acceptable, that which is pleasing. It's used in, in Proverbs uh, chapter 16 and uh, verse 7. When a man's ways are pleasing 
to the Lord. That word pleasing. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. That's the idea. Now, beginning in chapter 8 and verse 35, let's just look at a few of these. 8.35, find out what turns God on here. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Who's me? Me is wisdom. Kokmah, a skill to live life according to God's point of view. The skill of living life pleasing to God. And God says that if we find this wisdom, that we obtain favor of the Lord. The word favor is the word rapsun. So the idea of being pleasing to God. God delights in the person who has his wisdom. Chapter 11, verse 1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. God, del- whereas he uh, says that, that dishonesty is an abomination to him, honesty is a delight to him. Chapter 12 and verse 2. A good man will obtain favor from the Lord. A good man will obtain the delight of the Lord, but he'll condemn the man who devises evil. And so the goodness of a man, being good according to God's word. And then verse 22, lying lips are an abomination of the Lord, but those who deal faithfully, in other words, tell the truth, are his delight. God delights in truth. He delights in truth coming from your lips and from your life. Look at uh, chapter 14, verse 9. Fools mock at sin. Fools mock at sin. Incidentally, there's the word asham in the Hebrew, um, and it's, it's uh, 35 times in the King James Version. That word asham is translated sin offering. Fools mock at sin, but Probably better, fools mock at the sin offering. Fools mock at the atonement of sin. I don't need anybody. I don't need any salvation. I can make it on my own. Fools mock at the cross. Fools mock at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You see? But in contrast to that, among the, but among the upright, there is delight, goodwill. There is delight. There is favor. Look at chapter 15, verse 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination of the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. When your heart is right with God, there's a very fine line between, isn't there? Very fine line between. God says it's absolutely an abomination to me to hear the prayer of a wicked, wicked man. But I get really excited when a righteous man comes along and pray. Don't stop praying. Get your heart right with God and do lots of praying. God gets excited about that. It's his delight. Chapter 16 and verse 13. Righteous lips are the delight of kings, and he who speaks right is loved. Now that, of course, is speaking of an earthly king as opposed to the wrath of the king in verse 14. But the king often was God's representative. And of course the righteous lips are a delight to God as well. Chapter 18 and verse 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. Bill, you hear that? You awake, Bill? We're, in case you didn't get the word, we're marrying our youth director off. Isn't that nice? He's going to finally settle down uh, in November got just a little bit longer before he goes, but he's going. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Meanwhile, we who work with him have to put up with him. Can you imagine that? Terrible. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains the delight of the Lord, obtains favor from the Lord. Favor is the word rapsun. God is delighted when you find a wife. Isn't that interesting? Find a good thing. Now our verse in chapter 11 
And verse 20 says, The blameless in their walk are his delight. And it's that contrast between abomination and delight that's brought forth in this little antithetical district in 1120. We want to look at it closely. They that are of a perverse or a forward heart. Now let me tell you about the idea of being forward. We dealt with the forward man clear back in the beginning of our study when we were in chapter 3 about 100 years ago. And uh, we found that with the forward man there are at least 35 characteristics. They're all listed with some exegesis of it and so on in your notes. But let me just remind you, just let me go through this list of the things that, that are characteristics of this forward man. And we'll take a little closer look at who he is as far as the word is concerned in this verse. First of all, he relinquishes the straight road. He pursues the course of obscurity. He's excited about wretchedness. He spins around in the upside down world of the wretched. His path is all balled up, all tangled up. His way is distorted and meandering. doesn't know where he's going. He's a total failure. He's an empty man. He wanders with a false mouth, and he winks with his eye, and he motions with his feet, and he, he points with his finger, body language, but uses it to deceive all of the time. He devises evil all of the time. He spreads contentions. Instant ruin will strike him. Quick as a wink, he'll be, he'll be broken. God hates his mouth. His tongue will be eliminated. He uses wrong speech. He spreads discord. He's a slanderer who breaks up friendships. He's a cruel man and deludes his associates. He causes others to walk through a door that is unpleasant. He firmly shuts his eyes to fabricate a world with twisted values. He consummates evil by a movement of his lips, by the things that he says. The course of his life is perverted. The course of his life is foreign to God's ways. The course of his life is straight in his own eyes. He has a haughty eye, a vain heart. Even what seems commendable is condemned by him. He's described as hasty. He lies and steals to get treasure, and it proves to be empty. Violence of the wicked are going to catch him in a net and drag him away, and he refuses to make right decisions. That's a forward man. How many want to be like him? I'll tell you, that's God's description of this man. And God says, the way of the forward I hate. The perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord. Now, the word forward is the word Hakesh <coughs> means distorted, means crooked. The root is the word to not, K N O W O T, to not, or to pervert, or to twist. Uh, the word crooked is probably the, the best uh, colloquial term. He's a crooked man. The word epitomizes the idea of perversion and the uh, twisted nature of sin. In the Arabic, the related word was used to describe the braiding of a woman's hair. In Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 16, it's the only place where it doesn't speak directly of the twisted acts of sin. There, uh, interestingly enough, Isaiah, using very poetic language, uh, speaks of the Lord trying to straighten out the life of a person who has fouled things up. You know, I, I, I come home uh, sometimes uh, on the, uh, uh, on, after a busy day of talking to people and counseling and so on, and I, I look at my wife and I say to her, you know, honey, we sure leave simple life. Simple life. You know, we just love each other and, and you know, there's, there's no complication in that. But I talk to people all day long who have fouled themselves up. You, know, you have a woman come into your office saying, Oh, I'm so distressed. 
Well, what's the story? I'm married to my sixth husband, and I just wish I could go back to the first one. (laughs) (laughs) Lives that are messed up. And that passage in Isaiah is interesting because it speaks of the difficulty that the Lord is going to have in straightening that mess out. Of course, God can do it. God can unbraid the hair. God can 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 uh, unscramble an egg, you know. And uh, but but it's a mess. And yet God's going to do it because His people Israel are precious to Him. So that's the only place where it's used uh, concerning anything other than than just the wickedness of man. And you'll note that the seed of that twistedness, that perversity, is the heart. The heart. The perverse in heart, you know the old word for heart, lab. Lab is the center of the soul, it's the thinking part of the soul. You go through the Old Testament and New Testament alike, you discover that the word heart is used very liberally. It sometimes stands for the emotions, it sometimes stands for the will, it sometimes, and most of the time, stands for the, the thoughts or the mind, mind, emotion, and will. It... Uh, sometimes stands for the whole of the soul, mind, emotions, will, conscience, self-consciousness. It refers to individual parts of the man's soul, but it, it also refers sometimes to the whole thing. It's the center of the soul. It's the, it's the immaterial part of man. It's man's inward life, if you please. And this, this person's heart, this twisted heart, is an abomination to God. Uh, again, the word toeba, to loathe, to hate, that which is abhorrent, that which is despicable, and it's despicable to Yahweh. To Yahweh, the personal name for God, Yahweh, he is holy, and sin, all sin is hateful to Yahweh, hateful to Jehovah, hateful to the Lord. He loves with an everlasting love. Scripture makes that unmistakably clear that God, through Christ, loves us with an everlasting love. But he also hates with a perfect hatred. And you must never forget the extent to which God hates sin. It is absolutely despicable to him. And when a person's life is twisted, God doesn't hate you. But God hates the sin that has a grip upon your life. Over and over again, in, we, we run into this. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, there was no way syntactically, no way grammatically, to separate the person from his sin. It was impossible, if you please, to say and have it make any sense in Hebrew that God loves the sinner and hates the sin. And so therefore, when it says that God hates the wicked, it means that God hates that which made the man wicked. But God always loves the, the wicked, loves the sinner. But because of his permanent hatred as a, as a part of his very character, his permanent hatred for sin, God has to judge sin. God has to deal with sin. And beloved friend, the, the fact is this that God found a way to deal with sin whereby man could get off the hook. The wages of sin is death. He, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. Scripture is, says this repeatedly, over and over again. The wicked will die in their sins. There is a word of condemnation that comes. And one day, 2,000 years ago, God judged all of the sin of the world in the person of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He took all of the twisted values, all of the perversions, all of these things that God hates. He took it all and he laid it upon Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ bore that sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God perfected a transaction whereby 
credited to the account of every man, woman, and child in the world is perfect righteousness. And put in the debit column of his life is all of the wickedness. Not only all of the wickedness of his life, but all of the wickedness potential in his life. And Christ bore it all on the cross. He died not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. That's what 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2 tells us. Not only for our sins, he was the satisfaction, the mercy seat, the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Christ died to deal with the sin problem so that the sin problem would not be a problem any longer. Therefore, the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who has cashed in on that account that has been set up in his name, that person lives in wealth and riches, the wealth and the riches of the grace and mercy of, of God in Christ Jesus. That person can say, like the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No judgment. We do not sit under a cloud of judgment with the judgment hand of God going to deal with our sin. If we've accepted Jesus Christ as personal Savior, we have tapped into that account that gives us perfect righteousness. You know, the tragedy of our day is there are a lot of men, a lot of women, a lot of boys and a lot of girls who have said, well, I'll take my chances. Guess what? Your righteousness will never avail. And by that choice, that deliberate choice to refuse what God has provided, you choose his judgment and condemnation. Well, I hope if you're here today and you don't know the Savior, you'll realize the, the judgment that awaits you and that you'll realize that God also loves you and you'll come to him. Thank you, Father, for this good hour, this good beginning. We pray now that you'll bless these men abundantly as they go. Give them not only alertness throughout the day, but give them spiritual vigor and help them, Lord, to live their lives well-pleasing to you. Give them success as they put you first in their lives. Be with these young men as they go to school. We pray that you will use them as a witness and testimony for your own glory. We'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good day at work, man. May the Lord bless you.